You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. And Merry Christmas. (laughs) We are uh, coming to the culmination, not the end, because technically we have a post-Advent sermon next week. Um, But uh, the culmination of Advent, if you will, Jesus arrives tomorrow, according to our Western calendars. And so we wanted to, uh, (laughs) no, I couldn't resist. Uh, This season is about preparing ourselves. It's about anticipating. It's about preparation. It's, we, we, we love to remind ourselves. I was having a conversation before first service, and somebody said it's the reason for the season. We love to remind ourselves of that truth. Advent tries to remind ourselves of that truth. We, we sometimes get quite irritated when culture tries to remove the reason for the season, and yet it's quite difficult to live as if that's our actual belief. Like, just consider uh, consider your belief that this Jesus is the reason for the season for so many of you in the room today. And just look, think about your last few weeks, all the places you've been, the things you're doing, the energy that you're spending, the money that has exchanged hands between you and local vendors or the great Amazon.com. <laughs> and, and just think about all the things you've done and How much of what we do tells the narrative that Jesus is the reason for the season? Uh, Advent is designed to try to to wake us up, to keep us aware of the struggle and how difficult it is. And so we're coming to the culmination of that season. And it's part of the reason why everybody's giving me a hard time this morning. I suit up twice a year. Thank you. Aaron was the one that gave me one of the hardest times. I said, you're getting a selfie on Sunday. He said, I don't want a selfie. I said, I don't care. (laughs) So he's getting a selfie today. Everybody's got to be in this. Do your best duck face. Okay, we're doing... (laughs) Boom. Hashtag suited up. (laughs) I don't even know what's going on right now. Merry Christmas. Um, So, yeah, he's getting that later. Uh, Let's see here. What are we doing? We are talking about Christmas. And so, this is the culmination. So, what better way to bring about the culmination of our Advent series than to talk about a genealogy? I know. It's exactly what you wanted for Christmas. Santa told me. You wanted a sermon on a genealogy. Now, genealogies are interesting. Um, We have two gospel writers that that talk about Christmas directly. I like to say three, because I think John did a pretty great job. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this Word came to dwell amongst us. It's a pretty good Christmas story. But two gospel writers talk about Christmas directly, Matthew and Luke. Now, when we talk about Matthew's record of the Christmas story, we usually start about halfway through Matthew 1, But that's not where Matthew starts his Christmas story. Matthew starts his Christmas story at the beginning of Matthew 1 with a big genealogy of Jesus. Now, that makes sense because Matthew is a Jew writing to a Jewish audience with a Jewish agenda. And if you were to ask a typical ancient Jewish reader, what is your favorite part of the Hebrew scriptures? One of the things that would make the top of their list is the genealogies, which is interesting because for us Westerners, if there's one part of the Bible that we're constantly like, 
why is this in here? And this is a big waste of my time. And I really don't care. And I'm super frustrated. And this is why I don't, like I love people who are like, I'm going to read the New Testament. They flip open the Matthew one. They're like, nope. And Abraham begot Isaac and I'm out, right? This is for Westerners, and it's, it's just because of a disconnect between Eastern and Western thoughts. So let me introduce you to three ideas about genealogies that are, why do they mean so much to an Easterner? The first one is that a genealogy tell, says this, this is the story that I belong to. See, in the Western world, especially in the American Western world, we love to really focus on and zoom in on the individual, like your story, like grow up, leave home, and go find yourself. Like it's all about you becoming you. And whatever you do, make sure you don't copy anybody else. You have to be you. And so what happens is in our culture, we have this saying, especially amongst younger people, college students that I work with and even younger, but even amongst older folks, the saying that you'll all be able to, you'll be able to finish the sentence, I just want to be a part of something bigger than myself. It's what happens when we focus on genealogy does the reverse. Genealogy says you, you are a part of something much, much bigger than you. You, in fact, are merely one person in a long line of people that have been a part of a particular story that God's been telling. And should Jesus choose to wait until he returns, should Jesus tarry, there will be many people that come after you in this long what part are you going to play in this genealogy says I'm a part of something bigger than myself. And if you were a descendant of, say, Judah, that the story of Judah is your story. And so you would go all the way back to the book of Genesis where we're introduced to Judah. You would think to yourself, I'm from the tribe of Judah. Judah was this guy who kind of got booted from the family, made some really big mistakes, but because he was humble enough to admit that he was wrong, he becomes the tribe of the king because humble leadership is what God seeks to use. That's a part of who I am. Uh, Paul, uh, in the New Testament, if you know your New Testament, Paul said he was proud to be from the tribe of Benjamin. Very good. Benjamin. Paul knows. Did you know that in Genesis, when Judah comes back to the story of Joseph, he essentially not only kind of saves the whole story of Joseph, but in particular, he really saves the life of Benjamin. Throughout the entire rest of the Hebrew scriptures, Benjamin, throughout multiple places in the Old Testament, is going to keep repaying the favor to Judah by saving Judah's life, not actual Benjamin and Judah, but the tribe of Benjamin is going to save the tribe of Judah over and over and over again as this perpetual thank you for who Judah was all the way back in Genesis. Now tell me that's not exactly what Paul sees his life about. Paul said in Romans, I would give my own eternity. I would spend eternity in hell if it could save my Jewish brothers. Who is that? That's Benjamin. Paul knows where his story is connected to. It, no, he knows what his legacy is. He knows the bigger picture that he's a part of, and it's bigger than just Paul. It goes all the way back thousands of years to people like Benjamin. Next thing I would say, kind of connected to this idea is this. I was there. But one of the things I love about the Jewish tradition, when it comes time for Passover, and they talk about the story of the Exodus, they use this pronoun, we. They don't talk about our ancestors, they don't talk about they. They stood at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They came out of Egypt. Our ancestors, they say, we came out of Egypt. 
we stood at the bottom of Mount Sinai because in a very literal sense, we were there. Like, I think we could even say a more literal sense today, the, the things that we know about biology, science, genetics, I'm no scientist, but I know enough to know with DNA, in a very real sense, they were there. They were there. Genealogy reminds me, I'm just not an insignificant blip of existence, but I was a part of, this is my story, and I was there when the story took place. Tracking with me? Excellent. Last but not least, uh, genealogy says this, the bloodline is unblemished. The genealogy proves the purity of the bloodline. Now, this is kind of weird in our culture. We don't do this with people. It's been a while since we've done this with people. We do it with uh, racehorses. We do it with hunting dogs. Um, I'm personally a cat guy. I got cheers in first service. All the dog people show up to second service? All right, whatever. It's all good. It's all good. Anyway, so many jokes, so little time. So I have friends that will get purebred dogs, and I'm not a dog person, but I know enough to ask the question, uh, is the dog papered? Does the dog have its papers? Because that just moves the conversation to a whole nother place. We actually have somebody in our real life family that breeds champion hunting dogs. As Aaron and I were prepping for the sermon this week, Aaron told me uh, he's good friends with him. He said, if, his, if a male breeding dog of his were to accidentally breed with some other dog and some unplanned space that he would lose his breeder's license. That's how important purity of bloodline is. Now, again, that's horses, that's dogs. In the Jewish world, it really wasn't about the champion hunting dog. In the Jewish world, it was about belonging. It was about saying that this person belongs because you can trace their unblemished bloodline and they have a place of belonging. That's what genealogy was about. So you can see how when a Jew reads genealogy, they're like, oh, this is who I am. This is who I am. I am a part of something bigger than myself. I am a part of something. I do belong to something. That's genealogy. And so Matthew, being a good Jew, writing to a good Jewish audience with a good Jewish agenda, starts his Christmas story with a super compelling opening. Not like what we think when we turn it, we're like, ugh. To them, it's like, Yes, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, when they trace this bloodline in the ancient world, they're tracing it. It's a patriarchal world, not right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a different world than the one that we try to live in today. In their world, they traced it paternally. It's a patriarchal lineage. And so women are never mentioned unless there's some really rare occasion. Women aren't mentioned in genealogy because to the paternal lineage, they are irrelevant. They are not irrelevant, but to the lineage Mentioning them would do the lineage no good. It would not help you prove a blemished or an unblemished bloodline. So you rarely see them. So with those pieces of knowledge, I'm going to jump into Jesus' genealogy. You guys ready? Okay, excellent. We're going to make this fun, I promise. This is the genealogy of Yahshua, the Mashiach, the son of David, the son of Avraham. Avraham was the father of Yitzhak. Yitzhak was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Pratz and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. <coughs> Say what? What just happened? Just, just talked about a woman, and not just any woman, but if you're familiar with your story of Genesis, you're like, whoa, whoa, why? 
If you're not familiar with your story of Genesis, you can find this in Genesis chapter 38. It's the story of Judah. He's just gotten kind of like booted from the family. Judah goes and he marries a Canaanite woman and has three sons. His first son marries a woman by the name of Tamar. He dies before he has any sons with Tamar. In this ancient Eastern world, if a brother dies before he's able to produce sons, the ethical, the right thing to do, the generous, hospitable thing to do, the expected thing to do in their world is the next brother down is supposed to marry that widow and provide sons for her, the first son will legally not be his, but will legally be his deceased brother's child to keep the line moving. This is the ethical thing to do in their world. So when the first son dies, Judah takes his second son. He marries her to Tamar. But we're told in the text that the second son doesn't want to give her any children. And so he never completes the act of sexual intercourse. And God finds this so detestable, so unjust, and so wrong that he takes his life. Go read it. Um, then Judah thinks, well, this woman is cursed. He doesn't know all the backstory. He's like, I'm not marrying my third son. That's who's supposed to come next. Third son should marry Tamar and provide children for both sons. I'm not marrying, he's going to die too, so forget it. Tamar, who knows that she's being treated unjustly, dresses as a prostitute, tricks Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her, and she becomes pregnant with twins. If you've never heard this story before, you're like, this is crazy. <laughs> this is like Jerry Springer Bible style. <laughs> and it is. And when Judah finds out she's pregnant, he goes to have her burned at the stake. She, when she had this engagement with Judah, took his ring, his staff, his cord as a collateral for the engagement. She then sends the ring in private, in private, sends the ring to Judah to say, hey, see if you recognize these. And he could just have her executed Nobody would ever know, but instead he chooses to come out in front of everybody and say, no, she is more righteous than I, and I was in the wrong. Now, the story has this like awesome little redemptive hook at the end, but listen, if you're trying to prove the unblemished nature of the bloodline, this is not the story you go out of your way in the genealogy to be like, remember that. Remember that, and he doesn't have to. Matthew could completely, completely avoid this. Judah was a father of Peretz. Peretz was a father of uh, Hetzron. Hetzron was a father. He just keep moving. Matthew goes out of his way to include this story. Whose mother was Tamar. Peretz was a father of Hetzron. Hetzron was a father of Ram. Ram was a father of Aminadab. Aminadab was a father of Nachshon. Nachshon was a father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Who is Rahab? A prostitute, not just a prostitute, a pagan prostitute. So you're really screwing up the bloodline and going out of your way to mention something you could have just ignored. When I was in Bible college, I was taught that Matthew was written to prove that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. If that's true, Matthew gets an F. 
Because this is the worst genealogy in Jewish history. He's, he's doing the exact opposite of what genealogy does. Okay, let's keep going. Boaz was the father of Obed. Let's go back one. Obed was the mother, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Wait a minute. Who's Ruth? She's a Moabitess. And you're like, okay, a pagan. No, 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 no. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Moabites are identified as one of the nations that can't enter the assembly of the Lord to the 10th generation. They are a cursed people. You cannot marry them. And Matthew goes out of his way to mention the root. Okay, let's keep going. Obed, the father of Yeshai, Yeshai, the father of, and you're finally like, oh, goodness, thank you, King David. We can finally get to David. We can forget about all that other stuff. I don't even know what Matthew was thinking. He must have had a little bit too much eggnog and just like lost his mind because that was, but at least we're at King David. All right, we're at King David. All right, King David. Everybody say David. Okay, here we go. King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Oh. I can't even, I can't even talk about David, the greatest Israelite king, without mentioning the, the adultery and the murder. Like, what in the heck is Matthew doing? Now, if we remember Matthew's story, it may help us because I think Matthew might have a perspective that some of us, if not most of us, if not maybe even all of us in the room need to hear this Christmas week. Matthew, what was his story? Matthew was a tax collector. Somebody said Mumser. Somebody knows exactly where I'm headed. Um, Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was an outsider. People hated tax collectors. Let me, uh, Aaron was actually pointing this out after Thursday's service. Um, He's been studying a bunch of these biblical contextual PhD smart guys. <laughs> anyway, and, and they were talking about the book of Luke. And in Luke, Luke, Luke is designed with this unfolding of the nature of the kingdom. And so Jesus takes his disciples and he like throws the door, door open to some idea. And they're like, no way. That's what God's up to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, and then Jesus takes them one more step, throws up another door and they go, no way. And then Jesus keeps like, no way, no way. And it just keeps getting bigger and wider, but it keeps progressively getting crazier and crazier. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke moves the calling of Matthew to after the demoniac. In other words, the idea of a pagan demoniac in the Decapolis coming to follow Jesus is an easier idea to swallow than a tax collector being invited into the kingdom. That gives you an idea of the stigma that surrounded the tax collector. Let me give you some more context. Matthew is the guy who sits on the beach in his tax booth. Like, not one of the guys. Matthew is the guy who sits at his tax collector booth when the fishermen, people like Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip, the Bethsaida boys, they're out fishing. They come in every day with their catch. Matthew is a guy at the booth that says, two fish for Caesar, one fish for me, one fish for you. Three fish for Caesar, one fish for me, one fish for you. Two fish for Caesar, two fish for me, one fish for you. You hate this guy. Not only that, but he's a traitor. Rome did not employ Roman soldiers to collect taxes in a Jewish region like the Triangle. It's a quick way to get a Roman soldier killed. 
A Jew is much, much less likely to kill his own brother, and so Rome finds somebody who's willing to essentially be a traitor and to sign up to work for the enemy and collect taxes on their brethren. You can't stand Matthew. Matthew, whatever Matthew's backstory is, and we don't know, but Matthew did something, lost everything, made a horrible mistake, whatever, but he woke up one morning and went, you know what, the only, I'm just gonna go work for Rome, forget it. I'm done. What I love about that is Jesus goes walking out on the beach. He's like, Peter, Andrew, come follow me. What are they doing? Fishing. James, John, come follow me. What are they doing? Fishing. Philip, come follow me. Gets all the best say to boys. I can picture them like stepping out of their boats, like giving each other high fives, like, yeah. We got asked to follow Jesus. This is going to be awesome. They're all walking down the beach, got a little strut to it. And Jesus walks by Matthew and goes, you, you're with us. And the Bethsaida boys are like, excuse me? Yeah, he's with us. By the way, as a PS, he then goes on to call two Herodians, which are total cultural compromisers in their eyes. People that are like, oh, I'll have a little bit of Rome, I'll have a little bit of G uh, uh, Jewish, I'll have a little bit of uh, Greek, I'll have a little bit of luxury, I'll have a little bit of Bible, I'll have a little bit of everything. And then he calls two zealots who would love to kill a Herodian in their sleep. This group of people, do you, all, do you understand why they're arguing about who's the greatest all the time? They hate each other. They're not like, I'm the greatest. No, 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 I'm the greatest. They're arguing about worldviews. But don't worry, we don't do that at all today. Uh, never mind, oh, enough with that. So, so what I love about Matthew is Matthew has this perspective and he carries it from Matthew 1 all the way through Matthew 28. His agenda in his gospel is all the people that you think are done and out are in and included. All the people that you think don't have any more chances, they're spent, they're on the outside, we know what to do with them, Matthew says, no, you don't. And so when Matthew starts his Christmas story, he starts it with the worst genealogy in Jewish history. Because he says, okay, let me tell you about the genealogy of this great Jewish Messiah. Are you ready? You remember that story? Yeah, God was there too. Let me tell you something Matthew says about this Jesus that I've followed for the last few years. Let me tell you the one thing I've learned. The one thing I've learned is that there's nowhere that God won't go and there's nobody that God won't call. Christmas is for everyone. That... that is the story of Advent. We're watching, uh, every year you gotta pull out the Christmas greats, right? To watch on the telly. And uh, even a good Jewish family, you have to pull out the Grinch. Jim Carrey version, don't judge me. You have to pull out, uh, you have to pull out the um, uh, Muppets Christmas Carol, right? Just watching that this week. I, I just love it when like the Muppets get it more right than half of our Christmas sermons. Like the most iconic line, like the most iconic line in the Christmas carol. Tiny Tim, what does he say? God bless us, everyone. And as I was prepping for this sermon, I was like, yes. Yes, God bless us, everyone. I can remember Advent. See, I grew, up, I grew up in a Reformed, Protestant Reformed church. We did, listen to me, we did Advent. 
We did the wreath. We did the readings. We had a family that was chosen. Half their kids were like, I hate this. And they'd light the candle and they're like, and a baby was born in Bethlehem. And their father's like elbowing them. We did Advent, okay? There were, there were Advents where I was pretty sure Christmas wasn't coming for me because I knew the kind of life I was living. There were Advents when I was in Bible college and even pastoring a church where I knew this year's Advent will not go down as one of Marty's greatest Advents. This Advent's gonna go down as one of my worst ones and I know it. And I would sit in those those Advent series and I would think maybe next year, but not this one. I know that there are those of you, you were here in first service, I know you're here in second too. You're pretty sure Advent isn't for you. This isn't your strongest year. You're walking in a bunch of rebellion. You know that, brothers and sisters, listen to me, Advent is for everyone. This Jesus doesn't come for just the people that have it all figured out. This Jesus doesn't come for just the the ones that, the whole story of Advent screams from every page, from every character, everybody that gets an announcement, all the people that are willing to show up. Jesus comes to all the people he's not supposed to come to. Because that's the story of Advent. And in fact, if we're not willing to come to grips with that reality, the chances are, the Advent story tells us, that we're going to miss it. Because we'll be looking for the wrong Jesus, in the wrong setting, in the wrong place, and he won't show up tomorrow morning where we think he's going to. There are so many of you in this room that I have to tell you today, Advent is for you. This Christmas came for you. 2017, this Christmas is for you. Jesus is coming tomorrow morning for you. Not, not kind of like if you'll pull it together, not if you come up and we'll play just as I am at the end of the, nope, 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 nope. Jesus is coming for you tomorrow morning. That's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of Christmas. Now, I'm kind of getting worked up, so I probably need to work towards the end or else we just keep going. Merry Christmas. We'll just do a candlelight service tonight. Um, So uh, let's have our servers go back and get ready for the Lord's Supper. If you're visiting with us today, we have an open table. So if you're one of our visitors this Christmas and you want to celebrate the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, you need to know that you're family and you need to join us here today. Just hold on to the bread and the juice and we'll take it together here in just a moment. But I got three implications. I'm pretty fond of them. Let's walk through them. First implication. God is no less present in our disastrous chapters than he is in our victories. God is no less present in our disastrous chapters than he is in our victories. Sometimes we get like we're in this horrible dark place and we know it, like we have this thing we're ashamed of and we don't want to look at it and we know that nobody else wants to look at it and we know that nobody else wants to look at us because of it. And, all, and so we start to project that idea onto God. Well, God doesn't want to look at it either. God is just as present in your shame as he is in your victory. God is not ashamed of your shame. As much as you are, God is not. God is always present. 
always there. My, my favorite advent was one that I almost got fired for. I put a big stage in the middle of a sanctuary and we put a bunch of chairs and a big circle around the stage and I, I brought in a whole bunch of manure and I covered the stage. <laughs> You're like, yeah, you should have gotten fired. <laughs> and I put a manger right in the middle of it. Because that is the kind of setting and the kind of statement that God's making in the Advent story. This is where I'm willing to come. This is how much I love you. I remember grabbing it off the stage and being like, this, this. I also had a squeezy bottle of antibacterial hand soap. Uh, Next implication. The Christ is for everyone, and there is no one who is not invited to be a part of this messianic family line. My favorite series we've ever done here, personally, is the Galatians series. Happened a couple years ago. You could find it online and watch it if you wanted to. There's this line in Galatians where Paul is arguing that what makes you a child of Abraham, where did Matthew start his genealogy? Abraham. You want, you want to be a part of this messianic line? You want to make it into this family with all these crazy characters? Well, Paul said in Galatians, you know how you make it into that family? By trusting that God is for you. That's what gets you in. Not by being Jewish, not by eating kosher, not by being Torah observant, not by, not by wearing tassels, not by getting it all right, not by being squeaky clean, not by living righteous. You make it into the family tree by believing that God is for you. That's what defined Abraham and that's what can define you. Yes! Okay, last implication. The Christmas pronouncement that is this child's name, the Christmas pronouncement that is this child's name, Emmanuel, means God with us. It's more than just a name, it's a pronouncement. The Christmas pronouncement that is this child's name is more than just a theological truth about incarnation. Like sometimes we do the whole God is with us thing and it's this cold, distant theological idea. God became man and walked among us, which is true. Amen. Baruch Hashem. Glory, hallelujah. But it's more than that. It's more than a cold, distant theological truth. On the flip side, sometimes we like turn it into like, just hang in there, God with us. Like, it's more than just a passing, it's more than just passing comfort. This statement that God is with us is the greatest expression, one of the greatest expressions of God's acceptance and love. And you and I know this. Think about the relationships that mean the most to you. For me, it would be my wife and my kids. For you, it might be somebody else. It might be parents or siblings or a best friend. Think about those relationships that are closest to you, that mean the most to you. Are those relationships meaningful because they fix all your problems? Like I think about my relationship with my wife. She's not in here. I have never thought about my relationship with my wife with these. You know what I love about my wife? She fixes all my problems. That thought has never entered my mind once. But here's what I do love about my wife. My wife loves me in spite of all my problems. My wife has committed to walk through life with me no matter what comes and no matter how I screw this story up. She's not going anywhere. My wife is with me. You know what I've never thought when I get up in the morning? I can't wait to fix all my kids' problems. 
I have woken up in the morning on my good days and thought, I cannot wait to walk through life with my kids in the midst of all of their problems and be there for them. We know this to be true in the love that we cherish so much in our lives. Why don't we project that knowledge and that experience onto God? And instead we go, well, why doesn't God fix all our problems? Christmas is not the story of God coming to fix all of our problems. It's a story of God coming to be like, I'm not going anywhere. No, really, I mean it. I'm not going anywhere. It is one of the greatest expressions of his love and acceptance you could ever imagine. God sees all of your garbage, all of your mistakes, and says, <laughs> sends a whole choir of angels to a bunch of crazy shepherds who nobody's going to believe anyway, and says, listen, I got great tidings of wonderful joy for all people. Glory to God in the highest and peace on men on whom his favor rests. It's like, God's just like, I, my favor is on you. My favor is on you. My, we're going to talk more about that next week, so I better shut up. Because God's favor is a, this, God would come and dwell amongst us uh, enough. Okay. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Now. We hold in our hands really the same idea. We hold bread and we hold juice. And this is really just another, it happened later in his life. It wasn't at his birth. It's the same constant idea. In Jesus' moment of greatest terror, and make no mistake about it, it was filled with terror. Read about the garden where he prayed. It's so anxious, so stressed, so pressed in by the terror around him. He sweat drops of blood. Like pretty stressful. In the midst of that greatest fight or flight moment, Jesus said, there, there will be no flight, it's only fight. I'm here to fight the reign of darkness. I'm here to fight the consequences of sin. I'm here to fight despair. I'm here to fight all of those things that you could ever let hold you back. And I'm not going anywhere. Here I am. Th this is the pronouncement. This is the pronouncement of Christmas, just in a different form. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember this Christmas Jesus. Later in the meal, Jesus took a cup he gave it to his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. This is God making good on his promises. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, for some of us this morning, our prayer might be that you would remind us that Christmas is for everyone, even those people our enemies, our exes, the groups of people that we, 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 we just are enemies. Christmas is for them too. Christmas is for all those people that we think don't belong. Christmas is for them. Christmas is the pronouncement of God's favor on all men. God is for us. God is for us. And so he sends us Jesus because he's for us. And if he is for us, who could be against us? God, I pray that that would be the message that for so many of us, we would internalize this Christmas. That Christmas is for everyone. There is no one that can hear my voice right now that Christmas doesn't come for tomorrow morning. 
every single person, no matter where they come from or what they've done or who they've been or all the ways that they failed or all the apathetic whatever, all the things that could be wrong, all the mental illness, all of the, yeah, there's nothing, nothing that could keep this babe from coming to whatever setting in whatever place to show up for every single person. God, I, I pray that you would remind us of this. I pray that we would hear those words echoed. God bless us, everyone. And we pray all these things in the name of this messianic Christ child, Jesus, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.